Thanks, Mark. Uh, well, good morning and welcome to church. I'm going to add my welcome to Ethan's. My name's Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here at EV. Um, and what we've got here is a great section of God's Word, taking us through the next moments in the Acts of the Apostles. So why don't we pray together that God would help us to see His view of the world this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come and have just heard Your Word spoken to us today, we ask that by Your Spirit You'd enlighten our hearts. You'd help us to be excited about what you see, about your message going out, and that today as we sit under your word, you give us great confidence and boldness and hope to understand you and to see how we need to live for you, given who Jesus is. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, psychologists tell us that caring about what other people think about us is part of normal human behavior. It's normal to care about what other people think of you. If you've ever met someone who doesn't care what anyone thinks about them, generally they just come across as arrogant. I don't care what you think, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And we kind of go, oh, who is that person? It's part of normal human behavior to care about what others think of us. But the question comes, how do you want others to think of you? See, for the majority of us, we, we curate our lives to please others, different people, maybe ourselves, maybe others around us. We live and speak and act in such a way as to give an impression, which I take it that we really hope we, we want to give an authentic impression of what we're really like to those around us. However, last week as we went through the book of Acts, we saw the horrific consequences of two people, Ananias and Sapphira, who lived a spiritual facade. They, they, had a, they gave a different impression of their spiritual life than was reality about how much they had given and, and they lied about it. And we saw the horrific consequences of God's judgment on them for that. And as the storyline of Acts of the Apostles continues, it records for us what others think of the Apostles. We get to see the way they live and act and how they organize their lives and the impressions they give to others. And what we see in this next section are three encounters where the truth of Christianity butts up against the worldviews of society. And they all raise the question, these three encounters, how do you want others to think of you? What we're going to see today is that encountering the true and living God dramatically changes how we want others to encounter us. Encountering the true and living God dramatically changes how we want others to encounter us. So come with me on the first of these encounters with the encountering the supernatural. Acts 5 verse 12. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. In verse 16, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Imagine being there at the early church. Imagine seeing this news of Jesus kind of take off and go out, and, and these amazing miracles happen where people are healed, where people are running just to let the shadow of Peter pass by them and see them healed from his shadow touching them. Imagine seeing the power of the gospel go out in such a vivid and strong way of having leaders who walked and talked with Jesus, like them, that they knew him. Imagine what that would be like. Here we get a bit of a sense of that. As the early church began speaking out this message of hope and forgiveness, it pointed people to the true identity of Jesus as God the Son, the promised King. And people left their lives and came and followed Him. But it was inevitable that there'd be a collision with the forces of darkness. And in a sense, where we 
hear of this news, gospel going out, where we see this collision, is partly here in this section of Acts. It's amazing things that are going on, these miraculous acts. We've got to see, it's, it's just the apostles at this point. It's, it's actually not just them, it's God the Son working through them. It's not normal people that are just going around doing these miraculous acts. It's these apostles that we see and they're speaking and, and seeing all sorts of stuff go on. And it had an oppressive, impressive effect, not oppressive, impressive effect on the people who viewed it, as you can imagine. So Luke records the people spoke well of them. What do we make of the miraculous? How, how do we kind of think about these things today? Do you kind of feel like we're second-rate Christians because we don't see as much of that going on? Why don't we see the signs and wonders that Acts speaks of happening today? Are we somehow subpar and missing out? Worse still, are we hindering the growth of the kingdom? There's a few things to note as we get to this section of the Bible. Firstly, it's through the hands of the apostles that these miraculous works happen. It isn't something that was happening everywhere, it's through the ones Jesus sent, the ones He set apart to see them go on. Signs and wonders definitely happened. Secondly, these signs and wonders show the continuation of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, when He came, He lived and did miracles and showed the inbreaking of His kingdom, little kind of moments that were pointing forward to what it would be like when He returned and put all things right and sickness was done away with, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy about Him, the one who would give sight to the blind and see the, the lame hear and walk and the deaf hear. Uh, we see the breaking in of that with Jesus and now the apostles who were sent from Him show us that Jesus is not finished. Remember Luke starts, my first book I recorded all Jesus began to do, that was just the beginning and now he's continuing to work and the way that that is signified is that the apostles are doing the same things, well Jesus is doing the same thing through them. We see that's not their focus. People come to the apostles for all sorts of reasons, they came to be healed, they came to be freed of oppression. Jesus through His apostles, showed that when sickness and spiritual oppression come head to head with His appointed people to speak His Word, they are no match for Him. It was very clear to those around that these apostles were speaking and continuing the ministry of Jesus, or Jesus was continuing His ministry through them. But the focus was never on the healing. Every single person they healed still died, all of them. The focus was on setting the apostles up as the ones who would authoritatively speak God's Word. And that's why the early church creeds say we believe in one holy, universal and apostolic church. It's the church that the apostles tell us about, because they are the ones who had the authority to speak Jesus' Word to us. And I want you to notice then, number four, point number four in this, that the result of these miracles, people spoke well of them. People often speak well of God when God works well for them. Do you find that? When life kind of lines up and things are going well, God is great, but when things are hard, well, either God's not great anymore, or I'm not pleasing God. There must be something He's unhappy with me for, because if God was happy with me, of course, He'd do His best to bless me. And at this point, we see that lots of people were coming and, and coming to them to listen and hear and spoke well of them. But the thing is that when suffering comes, we abandon God. We start to think we've lost favour with Him. People spoke well of the Apostles for a little as this healing happened, but it doesn't last very long. 
Because the signs and wonders wasn't what they had come for. They had come to speak the word of God. The signs and wonders just signified them as the ones sent from God. So look what happens next when they encounter the influential. Encountering the influential, verse 17 of of chapter 5. Then the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. The gospel here comes head to head again with societies powerful and influential. And what do we see? They're filled with jealousy. They're not pleased with the apostles. They're not going, oh, we love what you're doing. They're jealous. They're not jealous to make sure God's word is taught well or that the people that they're leading are understanding right doctrine. They're jealous because they've lost power, because someone is challenging them. And it made me think, it's not too different from society today, is it? As long as Christianity stays weak and insignificant, the world around us doesn't care, do they? As long as your faith is private and stays private, then it's fine with the world around us. But the moment that you say, this is what you believe, and that intersects with what others believe and shows that what others believe to be wrong or different, well, then you've got to be quiet. You can't say that. That's not helpful. The moment more and more people start coming to Jesus and things start looking bigger, are the moment that the people start seeing Jesus as the true authority and then react against Him. The world around us arc up, they get jealous. What right have you got to say that your view is true? What right do you have to influence the world? Your views are damaging, I think. And so we get pushed back and silenced and told to say, keep your head down, never put your head above the line. They want to lock away our opinion to shut us up. What happened here is still happening today. The world around us wants to shut up the opinion of Christians. That's exactly what they did. They put the apostles in jail. Now, if you care the most about what others think, if, you're, if you really care that what others think of you and their opinion of you is, and that kind of drives the way you think, when this sort of oppression happens, when we, we go to speak up and people say, no, you can't, we'll toe the line. We'll close our mouths and fall into line and say, well, I just need to continue the way society is because that's the way society is. That's not what happens with the apostles. They're in this jail, then God frees the apostles miraculously. They get out. The kids' talk was so great. It just happens, right? That Their chains fell off. They left. And it's interesting, isn't it? God frees them, but He doesn't give them the direction when He frees them from this jail. Now, guys... Be a little more careful what you say next time. Guys, when you're speaking in public, maybe think through pulling it back a little so that it's not as strong and I'm not going to jump in and do this stuff to get you out of jail. Maybe think about how you say it and make sure you're coming across in a a way that the world around kind of understands a little more and slowly gets a little bit of. And Make sure they, maybe you shouldn't speak it. Don't speak in that way about what it is. Maybe just act and they'll see your love. They'll see the way you are just from the way you live and you shouldn't say that. He doesn't do any of that. He gives them this command. Look at verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Couldn't be more direct. I'm freeing you from them censoring you to put you right in the middle, the temple of their religious world and speak of the life that I have given. Go do it again. He doesn't say, go heal people to help them get better, although they do heal other people along the way, is the inbreaking of the kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we should be praying that God would heal people. 
But the thing that he's, they're told to do is to speak. To tell the people about the life that Jesus has brought for them. And so they go straight back to the temple, to the heart of the people that put him in jail in the first place and speak. And it's not long then before this Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, they find them. They're like, what is going on here? What are you, what are you doing? Now listen to what they say, verse 28. Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. This Jesus you speak of, the one that we crucified, I don't want you speaking of him. Stop making us look bad and people following you. You'll be quiet on that because you're not going to put us, the leaders, we're the leaders, you're not going to put us in a position of needing to sit under him. How would you respond? Whose opinion would you live for if that happened to you today? Just say that um, the courts came in here and hauled us before them. And the question they put before us is, do you really think Jesus is the only way to God? And that every other religion in the world is misguided and false and untrue and therefore dangerous? What are you saying? How do you respond when the truth that we have is the truth? Maybe for you it's not the courts. Maybe the courtroom is the... the, the, the work lunch table, where we're seated around each week and, and what's on trial is how reasonable we are in the eyes of our colleagues. How can someone like you believe that God's way is the only way? What will you say then? Or perhaps for you, it's the courtroom of the family gathering. And as you come together, the family expects you to live a certain way in line with your family's traditions and heritage. It might even say lines like, our honour as a family is at stake. Why are you doing this? Why are you living in such a way that is so damaging to our reputation, to our, to our friends and family outside of us? Why do you need to believe Jesus is God? What will you say? Because these moments will come. Listen to Peter and the Apostles' reply, verse 29. Peter and the Apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When you've encountered the risen Lord Jesus, when you've recognised that he is God the Son, and you're convinced He really did die, and God really did rise Him again from the dead as He promised He would. And when the Spirit of God gives us the incredible clarity to recognize Jesus is King, and He will come back again to judge the living and the dead, well, there's only one way you want to respond, you can respond. To speak the truth of who He is, for to deny Him is to deny that reality. There's only one person to live for. And the apostles hit the nail on the head. We must obey God rather than people. We won't be perfect in the way we respond. We won't always live God's way. We won't always say the right things. But we must always live for the one God who has died for us and risen again and promises to come back again. What would it look like 
for you to hold that mantra. We must obey God rather than people. What would it look like to live that way? How would your life look different this week if you did that? How would it change the way others view you? And you start to reflect on that and you start to see the, the idols that we have that people would think that I'm not as cool or not as smart or not as rational. What would it cost you to hold the view that we must obey God rather than people in everything? What will it cost us? So there were moments when the crowds loved the apostles as they were healing, seeing the healing power of Jesus work through them. People saw the kingdom breaking in. They saw glimpses of healing that would come when Jesus returns. But the crowds loving the apostles was not the normal response. Look at the response of these society's leaders in verse 33, Acts 5:33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Friends, living the spirit-filled life means being shaped and molded by the spirit of God. It's less about miraculous healing and more about miraculous living. Living where Jesus is the one that you're serving. Living to point people to the one you believe is the King and Savior of the world and speaking that message, talking about His life, His death, His resurrection, that He's coming back again. Living the Spirit-filled life, living for God and not people, will mean that we encounter the horrific. We'll encounter the horrific. It's point number three. Look at what happens to the apostles. Verse 40. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Now, it's a very matter of fact as we go through. Luke, the medical doctor, records he had them flogged, 39 lashes, their, their backs kind of ripped open with this whip as they were tied to something so they couldn't move away. Blood coming from them, their world filled with pain, why would they do this? Why would they keep speaking of Jesus through the horrific nature of what is happening to them? This is no joke for them. But they were so convinced of the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. The Spirit's work in their life helped them to say, yes, I stand for Him. They were so convicted they must speak the truth that they endured even the most horrific. You know, nearly all the apostles died for their faith. Peter, upside down on a cross because he didn't want to be dying the same way church history tells us that Jesus did. He wasn't worthy of that. John dropped in a bucket of boiling oil or something like that and then living out his days, not killed for it, but on an island, exiled. Why were they so convinced to keep speaking the truth? Because they were pleasing God, not men. Because they had been captured by the Word of God. What's interesting to note is that the God who delivered them from jail without even breaking a sweat just one day earlier doesn't deliver them from this horrific event. Do you see that? He could have. God could have gone, right, no, you're not going to do that and it would have been sorted. The God who could free them from jail and from the guards doesn't free them from this horrific event. And that needs to shape the way we think about God and our life as well. He allows them to go through 
with this horrific punishment to try and stop the apostles from speaking. Why would God do that? Well, there's a few things to learn from that as we think about the horror of life and as we face all sorts of trials and persecutions. God's plans and purposes are not necessarily our plans and purposes. See, often we come along and we want to domesticate God, say God is good and He is. God is love and He is. And that means that God will always treat me the way I want to be treated. No. God will always treat us what is for our good And what we want to do is we want to domesticate God and tame Him down and say, He'll always act in the way that I think I would want Him to act towards me. But what is for our good is not often the good that we want. And the good that we want is not often for our own good. God uses all sorts of situations and circumstances to bring about His plans and purposes, to make sure we stand firm in Him to the end. The God who used the apostles to heal sicknesses and perform wonders and signs is the same God who allows all sorts of pain and suffering and horror and atrocities. He's not behind it. He's not the one who's doing it. But He allows it. If we have a view of God that if you come to Him, everything will be a bed of roses, you have a view of God that has come from your imagination. This side of Jesus' return, life will be hard Speaking the truth of the gospel will hurt. If they persecuted the perfect Son of God, the one that we follow, do you really think they'll be more lenient on fallible followers like us? We must let God be God. He doesn't promise a perfect and pain-free life now. Quite the opposite, actually. The second thing we see through this is that hardship and opposition... They have a strengthening effect on those that endure. You notice that in life? That things that are hard and as we endure through them help us to keep going. Uh, No pain, no gains, the old saying. And the reality is that God uses the hardship and affliction here in Acts to see the gospel go out further and more resolve of these apostles. They don't just give up, oh, this is too hard stuff, but I'm going to go back to thinking Jesus didn't rise from the dead and then I'll just sit here in my sin. No, they hold to it because they're convinced of what He has done. The Spirit works in them. And so hardship comes. It's kind of like um, a house plant. I don't know if many of you have house plants. We've tried to get a few plants in house in our house. We stayed at a friend's place on holidays and they had lots of house plants. We're like, oh, this is nice. And so we've got some plants in our house. And one thing I've noticed about house plants is that they just don't last long. Maybe that says something more about me than them. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you've got to keep watering them. I, I, know, I never water the plants outside. They just kind of keep growing. But the ones inside, they start looking all down and, and kind of tired and droopy. They're not very strong. They're like, I need help. And they're kind of like, oh. do you know house plants have a very simple root system? It just stays in the pot. But a plant that is planted outside, that experiences the hardship of the wind and the, and the cold and the heat, they actually have complex root systems that, that allow them to stand through the ups and downs of the weather. So it is with the hardship we encounter. We need to not be houseplants, but outside plants. (laughs) Plants that God uses the ups and downs of life to make them harder and endure. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it's on the screen, for our momentary light affliction, (laughs) that's what he calls it, is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. 
This is light and momentary, the stuff we're going through. And he, and, he, and he catalogs it in 2 Corinthians. Shipwrecked twice and lashed five times to the point of death. Nights in the open sea. You read it, you're like, man, that's light and momentary? Compared to the 40 billion plus eternity years you'll spend in eternity. Yes, it is light and momentary. But it is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of eternal glory. It's molding us and shaping us and refining us. God is doing that to say, hold on, keep trusting me, keep speaking the truth. So we do not focus, Paul says, on what is seen, on on the here and now, but what is unseen, what is to come. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen lasts forever. Christian witness is helped by opposition. We need to hear that. You might be in the midst of opposition now with hardship around you and you're feeling like you want to give up. You need to hear that God is holding you by taking you through this. Trust Him. You might be a point in your life when you feel like it's all going well and everyone's like, man, I wish I trusted God. Life looks rosy for you. It will come. So when it comes, don't think God is not blessing you. Actually recognize that He's shaping you to be more like His Son. So you might endure And focus on what is eternal, not on the here and now. Look at what happens to these apostles who are told in no uncertain terms, do not speak, we've lashed you, we will kill you if you keep doing this. Verse 41, they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. You're like, is there something wrong with these guys? They just got lashed. They just felt incredible pain. Their backs are cut open and they're bleeding. And and, and the, the threat is, if you keep doing this, we will kill you. We will kill you. You will die. But they're like, man, I, this is, I'm excited because I'm telling people about the true king. And what I'm doing is, I'm living for eternity. I'm focusing on what is to come and helping people to recognize that Jesus is the king, that he's died and that he's risen again. Look what they do, verse 42. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Do not let Satan win. Do not push away the role of the Spirit to embolden you to speak of the truth of the gospel in our lives. Do not think that as suffering comes, God's saying, don't do it, it's a sign. He doesn't want me to speak anymore because it was hard. Quite the opposite. Giddy up is what we say. They didn't care what others thought or what others did to them. Their strength came from being united to the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name that will spend an eternity surrounded by this person, around him and in relationship with him and his people for his name's sake. You ever had that moment when you're quite jealous for someone's name and reputation? I remember in primary school, uh, someone... Uh, one of my classmates said something negative about my mum. That was a mistake. I like turned into Hulk mode. I'm like, you never say anything about my mum. I can hustle her, but you can't, right? And I was so angry. I remember, I just remember the, the kind of anger I had. You cannot say that about my mum. Well, here, they consider it joy. They are rejoicing because for the name of their saviour, they are proclaiming the truth. That is what they live for. You won't shut us up. Opposition sharpens our understanding of the Christian faith. Not only does it strengthen us, it sharpens us. See, throughout church history, things have threatened to strangle the church. But 
they've strengthened the church, different views around who Jesus is and what he's done, and the church worked hard, and it felt like there was an opposition that was coming here from these people who thought something different. Maybe Jesus wasn't God. Maybe there was a time he didn't exist. And the early church banded together and sat under Scripture and worked out, no, this matters, and it strengthened the church. It helped the church to articulate a clearer expression of the truth. Friends, that keeps happening in every age and stage. There are different oppositions that come to us that we need to clearly and carefully articulate the truth in the society that we live in. Views on sexuality and and gender, views on life and death and the start of life and the end of life. We need to articulate against the current pressures that are there and that helps us as the Christian church. Sit under the Bible, be convinced of and sitting underneath the Word of God. Every generation is forced to work out how the Christian faith is being attacked in their day and whose opinion we will live by in response to it. Now, I know it's hard. It's horrible to be attacked. We might not be whipped in our, at, our, at our lunchtime workplace for our views around Jesus. But persecution comes from all sorts of different places and people. Sometimes because of dumb things we've said and we deserve some of it. Sometimes because of dumb things others have done. And maybe sometimes a bit of both. And other times because of the world around us hates Jesus. But the reality is we need to see it as God shaping and molding us. To stand firm. To trust His Word. The apostles, they rejoiced. They didn't just grin and bear it going, Oh, I just really want this totally to end. Well, they did want it to end. But they rejoiced. They expected the enemy would fight. Do you? They expected to be persecuted. Do you? They expected that the gospel will cause intense hatred for some. Do you? We must not think otherwise. We must not expect that everyone will love the news of Jesus. They won't. Sure, there's been times in human history when God has drawn hundreds and thousands of people to Him. There's also been times in human history when the church has shrunk. Do you know that all the churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 don't exist anymore? They're They're not there. But our confidence doesn't come from our efforts or suitability or the fruit we see, but from truly encountering the Word of God. It's the last point I want us to see, encountering the Word. So the apostles, they had encountered the Word become flesh. Jesus, they'd they'd met Him. They were convinced of who He was and what He had done. But more than just meeting Him, they had His Spirit. Remember, before the Spirit came, they were weak. Peter denied Him three times. I don't know who this Jesus is, no idea. But then the Spirit comes and emboldens them. And look at the change. The same Spirit who is in you and me, if you trust in Jesus. And they committed themselves to preaching and to teaching this message. That was the thing they focused on. That was what drove them. Look at verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as ruler and savior to to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Friends, that's the reality. And if you're here today checking out the things of God, thinking about Christianity, you need to hear this Jesus is your God. He made you and He died for you and He rose again and He says that forgiveness is on offer. Forgiveness for turning your back on God is on offer. If you come and trust Him, 
That's why the apostles are, are so focused on preaching this message. Yes, healing was great and praying for God to heal people and help them get through times of sickness and have comfort is, is really important. But what drove them was the news that gives life forever. And that's why they speak of Jesus' death and resurrection and repentance and forgiveness of sins. They were so captivated in their hearts and minds that they were willing to endure everything for the sake of others recognizing that Jesus is their God. That's why in chapter 6, we see this next section, they're, they're so focused on ensuring that the Word of God is able to be preached. They also want to make sure people are loved and those in their community who were without food were cared for, because as you see the Gospel, you see that love flows out to others. But if you just love others, that doesn't necessarily mean you, you speak of the Gospel of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. So that was so clear on the priority of Gospel preaching and proclamation that means we love others. But they set up these other people to be able to wait on tables to be able to care for the people so they could continue in word and prayer because it was the word of God that saw them be shaped and molded to speak the truth of the gospel. They see the absolute necessity for those who can to speak the word of God. After World War II, there was a theologian by the name of Oscar Cullman. And he had this illustration about the distinction between D-Day and V-Day, if you know your World War II history, which I'm not great on, let me fill you in some of. By the spring of 1944, the Russians were kind of uh, presenting in from the east, and the other allies had kind of cleaned out North Africa and were pressing up the boot of Italy, and then the allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, D-Day. They dumped 1.3 million people, men, on that beach, and a ton of war material in three days, they just went whack and put this massive power there. And at that point, on D-Day, anyone with half a brain in their head could see the war was over. 1.3 million troops at this point, at this time, of course they're going to win. This is massive, this is huge. But what did Hitler do? Did he go, oh, sorry, I've, I've made a mistake, I want to pull back, I want to I turn back, I'll retreat? No. Some of the most horrific fighting in the war took place after D-Day. For another year that went on. And even though anybody could see that the war was over because of the, the force that had landed on those beaches at Normandy, the writing was on the wall, yet there was still this horrific battle going on before the final day of victory came a year later. Biblically speaking, for us, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are D-Day. Death has been defeated Anyone who kind of recognizes the depth of what went on at the cross, spiritually speaking, can see that the war has been won at that point. Death has been beaten. Sin has been paid for. Christ has died on the cross. He's extinguished the wrath of God and taken it on Jesus. Those who trust in Him are forgiven and declared right with Him. This thing is over. In fact, Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. But does that mean the devil sits back and says, oh, I made a mistake, Sorry. No, it means that right now in this age, between Jesus' death and resurrection and then Jesus' final return, is the age that he is doing all he can with as much fury as he knows to get Christians to give up and to trust in him and in the ways of this world rather than Jesus. For us, Victory Day is the return of Jesus. And while anyone can see, if you recognize what happened at the cross, that the battle's already been won, we're still waiting for Him to come back. 
And until Jesus returns, some of the nastiest fighting is still going to go on. Life will be hard and we should expect it to be hard. But what keeps us going is the work of God's Spirit in us, pointing us to Jesus, the Word of God, looking back to God's D-Day when the Word became flesh and died in our place. It's the Word of God that focuses us, that gives us laser-sharp clarity as the Word and Spirit work together to convict and shape and mold and focus us on what Jesus has done, to live in the here and now when it feels like the world around us is pulling us in every direction, when the temptation comes to give up, to He reminds us to look to the gospel. See what has happened at the cross. It is finished. And what the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. Friends, I want to ask us all today, have you encountered the word of God, Jesus? Have you recognized that he is God the Son and that he died for you? And if so, will you live for His view of you rather than your own or the world's? If you trusted in Jesus, then you no longer want to be seen as merely popular or or profitable or persuasive or perfect. You want to be seen as someone who's totally captivated by Jesus. So shaped by the Word of God, you live wholly and solely for Him. The one who has the power to remove the apostles from prison without breaking a sweat is the one who has the wisdom to allow us to suffer in hardship as we proclaim the word of God so we might endure and Jesus' name be held high. He's the one in control. He's in control of your job, of your boss, of your family, of your life situations. And he never promises that he'll make it plain sailing. But he does give us every opportunity to live for him in all of life. To rejoice that we are worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name of Jesus. It got me thinking, what will it look like for me this week? For me this Christmas season to live boldly for Jesus? What will it look like for you this week, this Christmas season? to care more about what he thinks of you than what others think of you. And what you say at work to your neighbors, to your family, to your friends. What will that look like for you? To be so captivated by the word of God, by Jesus, that you boldly live and act and pray and speak in line with his gospel and his glory. Friends, D-Day has come. And it's just going to get messier. But V-Day, the return of Jesus, is coming. And the only thing that will hold us to the end is placing the Word of God as central to our lives by the work of His Spirit and boldly living and speaking to please Him and Him alone. Is that something you can commit to praying for? That you would live God's way for His glory in everything? Is that something that you can commit to living out Because that is the miracle of the work of the Spirit in us, to live no matter what for the glory of God. Let's pray that He'd help us to do that. Lord God, we recognize, we know that you know the pain of the suffering this world causes. The temptation to give up, to think that it's too much, to turn our back on you and just live a comfortable life. Lord, we all feel it. 
And we know Jesus experienced that but did not give in. And we are so thankful that by your spirit and through your word, that your apostles proclaim the truth of the gospel no matter what the cost. Help us to have your word at the heart of all that we do. Help us to recognize how amazing it is to know our future is secure. And by your spirit, embolden us to speak wisely and helpfully and truthfully to the world around us, even when it hurts, even when it costs. We know you're in control of everything. We know you don't promise comfort now. Please use us as a church that lives for your glory and your glory alone. Pray this in Jesus' name.